Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. Uh, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to shout out the fundraiser that myself and a bunch of cooks are doing right now. The goal is to raise $10,000 this month uh, by running 47 miles to represent 47% of households facing hunger during this pandemic. And then we're doing it, uh, the Lion Cook Thoughts followers, uh, people who listen to the show, uh, cooks who are interested in this uh, this experience that we've created, we're running to to get these funds to No Kid Hungry. So the month of September, we are all running 47 miles uh, to raise $10,000 for No Kid Hungry. So if you're interested in donating, there's going to be a link in the show notes or the you know the description of this episode. And it'll also be on my Instagram or Twitter bios. And if you want to donate or just help share our message of trying to raise money for No Kid Hungry, uh, feel free to message me directly on any social media site that you follow me on. And um, yeah, I, it, it's just a great cause that we're all doing. And so I'm really just wanted to just wanted to plug that really quick. Uh, but today, my guest is John Birdsall. John grew up near San Francisco and learned to cook at Green's Restaurant in that city. He spent the next 17 years in professional kitchens there and in Chicago and did some writing as a side gig, including food stories and restaurant reviews for the San Francisco Sentinel, a pioneering LGBTQ weekly. After leaving the kitchen, he was a restaurant critic and features writer at the Contra Costa Times and East Bay Express and the editor of SF Weekly's food blog. In 2014, he won a James Beard Award for Food and Culture for Writing, America, Your Food is So Gay, and Lucky Peach, and another in 2016 for Straight Up Passing in the queer food journal, Jerry. He's written for Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Los Angeles Times, and has taught culinary writing at the San Francisco Cooking School. And I'm very excited to have him on the show. Um, you know, someone who has had such an impact in just the industry and through his writing and kind of looking in depth into the culture of cooking and what it is to be a cook um, and, you know, to be just a part of this industry and how it moves and how it moves forward. I think it's so important to have someone like John writing and addressing issues uh, that so many cooks face, but maybe not a lot of cooks talk about due to the hierarchy we have set up. Uh, another big reason I wanted to have him on is he is coming out with a new book. Uh, John was very gracious in sending me an advanced copy of the book, and I, I really loved it. It's called The Man Who Ate Too Much, A Life of James Beard. It comes out October 6, 2020, published by Norton. And it, he sent this book, and it was amazing. I read it uh, before this podcast, um, not like today, but you know, leading up to putting this out. And I really didn't know much about James Beard. I mean, obviously, I know the James Beard foundation and i knew that he was big for american cooking but i didn't really know his life and his story and what john does in this book is truly incredible he gives you an in-depth perspective on who james beard was how he thought his struggle of you know never coming out in his lifetime uh to being gay and having to hide that his whole life or feel that he had to hide that due to the industry he was in and so it was really just a compelling story about someone who really shaped and changed the landscape of American cooking, but also being so just like so hidden from who he truly was or having to hide who he truly was inside. And so I really thought John did a tremendous job on the book. I loved it. And if you are able to get it October 6th, uh, please get The Man Who Ate Too Much, A Life of James Beard. It's truly a remarkable book. In this podcast, we talk about John's career. Uh, he has had a really fascinating career. So we kind of talk about how he got into food writing, um, how he was a cook for some time and how he transitioned into food writing. We then talk about a bunch of different topics in terms of how his writing uh, kind of resonated with a lot of cooks who are gay, who, and who are 
who are do who do feel that it is hard for them to come out in kitchens and kind of this hierarchy kitchen culture and how it has been toxic and how it can lead to people not feeling comfortable or not feeling like they can truly be who they are in kitchens. And we talk about that. And I think his writing addresses that greatly. Um, we then talk about, you know, James Beard. We get into a little bit. We talk about his impact, the impact of Jeremiah Tower, and just kind of the impact of food writers who were gay and who hit it, but ultimately who changed the landscape of American dining. And not just for cooks, but for people who perceive the food. These were voices in our industry who had to hide who they were. And so it was very fascinating to talk to him about that. We touch on Anthony Bourdain. We talk about John's own transitions into writing and what it meant to write for Lucky Peach and have his two James Beard award-winning uh, articles kind of be out there and impact the landscape. And we just talk about more, much more, you know, even the love of a, of a burger with blue cheese on it. I mean, there's so many different topics, but um, I just wanted to thank John so much for, of course, coming on the show. For sending me a copy of his book. I love reading. And it, like I said, it was truly an awesome book to read. Um, and just for being a voice for people that, you know, in this industry, we are so rigid and it's so tough to have any change sometimes. But to have someone like John writing and getting voices out there and just being someone who promotes positive change and lets people know that this is what needs to happen. Um, I just think it's very important that he does this with his work and so it was truly an honor to have him come on the show um feel free to you know message me if you have any questions about you know getting the book when it comes out i really do wish him the best of luck on it um but i really just hope you all enjoy this episode you know we spent an hour and a half talking and it truly was great so john thank you so much for coming on thank you all so much for listening and here we go Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. John, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Ray. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited to be talking to you. Uh, a lot of questions. I uh, I think my list of questions for this episode is the longest I've ever um, <laughs> <laughs> I've ever written. So you have that honor of uh, being the, oh, well, having the most well, questions. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, I was going to say, uh, you know, maybe because I've had a very long career, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of uh, impressive work in your career that we're going to get into. Um, but first, if you could just introduce yourself, and also if you wanted to share the project that's coming out uh, in October, I think that would be a great place to start. Great. So my name is John Birdsall. Um, I live in Tucson, Arizona, as of last week, um, and I'm the author of an upcoming book. Uh, it's a new biography of James Beard called The Man Who Ate Too Much. Uh, it's published by Norton, and it'll be out on October 6, uh, 2020. Awesome. And that can be found on Amazon, major bookstores, all of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so there are links. Um, um, there, Yeah, There's. it's, it's available through um, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, 
um, IndieBound, which is a which is a great source for books. It'll hook you up with a local, small, independent bookseller in your area. Um, but yes, mm-hmm. it's available through through all those uh, sources. Awesome. Well, you know, I'm personally very excited to read it. Um, I really enjoy uh, food history in terms of like, you know, how we kind of got here with uh, cooking and how you know chefs have evolved and whatnot. So, very excited yeah. to read it. Um, very you know honored to have you on. And I like to start all my interviews out with kind of the origin story. So if you could just share what, you know, where you're from and what food was like for you growing up. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, a suburban town about 10 miles south of San Francisco. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a kind of blue collar working class household, um, you know, solidly middle class my parents uh, were both from, had both grown up in San Francisco. And so um, in both of their families, they had a tradition of um, cooking and, you know, eating well, according to the standards of the time. Um, you know, when, when I was a kid, uh, you know, my mom, you know, it was a time of big supermarkets and frozen food and canned foods, but my mom still cooked, you know, bought and cooked certain foods that were um, seasonal, you know, like we, she really looked forward to um, the local Dungeness crab harvest, uh, the first asparagus, the first artichokes of spring. Um, so I did grow up with a kind of seasonal appreciation of foods um, and yeah, we, you know, food was really important in, in, in my household. We, we all, you know, the four of us and the nuclear family, we all ate together. Um, yeah, mealtime was really important. And also my dad had this tradition, you know, even though he was like a blue collar guy, he had grown up, um, being taught that eating out at a restaurant was this really special occasion. Um, mm-hmm. and so my mom and dad would take us to local restaurants that were like fancy, you know, for us. And, um, you know, my dad was very, very careful to teach my brother and I how to conduct ourselves in restaurants, um, you know, basically how to order, how to be polite. And also a huge thing, like be very respectful of um, waiters. <laughs> for some reason that was, he was, you know, I think as someone who did kind of labor himself, I think he really appreciated um the kind of work that other people did. Um, so yeah, we were taught to, to order, order, um, politely and to be, to be really respectful to, to, to our, to our servers. That's cool. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously had set in, you know, some way your love for food or obviously the respect that you could have for someone in the restaurant industry. Is there a particular dish that your mom might've made? Or, um, I know in your one piece, you talk about, uh, the burger, uh, which I know yeah. we'll be getting into. Um, but in terms of going out to eat and with your parents, was there any specific meal or was there any specific dish that kind of resonates with you and them that like you kind of carry with you today? Yeah, my, you know, my mom, um, like Sunday, Sunday dinner was always kind of a special, a special weekly occasion. Um, you know, there'd be sort of cheaper kind of budget, foods during the week um, but then Sunday she would she would spend more and there'd be it was kind of a traditional like euro centered <laughs> um, sort of thing where there'd be um, a roast of some kind 
um, like mm. her leg of lamb. Her leg of lamb was really fantastic. She, you know, stick thin slices of garlic. You know, she'd like insert slices of garlic um, all over the lamb. She she'd roast it so it'd still be pretty pink, um, and she would roast potatoes like underneath the leg. She had this like electric rotisserie, and she mm-hmm. would um, she would cook potatoes underneath it so they would absorb the the, the juices from the lamb. So that was a really um, that was a dish that I really looked forward to, um, and it made it made Sundays very very special. That sounds great. Um, it sounds delicious. Uh, and yeah. you know, kind of going into, I know we'll talk about your piece a little bit later, but um, this these influences you had as you know someone growing up with food, uh, Pat and Lou, and the the famous burger with caramelized onion, Roquefort <laughs> cheese, um, and gray <laughs> poupon mustard. What was uh, right. what what did if you could just kind of explain that and kind of the impact that kind of food had on you? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're referring to the piece, uh, that I wrote for Lucky Peach. It was in, Mm -hmm. uh, 2013 called America, your food is so gay. And, um, yeah, in part of that piece, I talk about, um, so our neighbors when I was growing up and, um, my parents' best friends was a, um, was a gay couple, um, Pat and Lou, as you say. And, um, you know, it was, it was the 1960s. It was the late 1960s. And, um, they, you know, it, it was California, not far from San Francisco. So maybe things were a bit more kind of accepting, but, um, they kind of lived a careful life. You know, they lived essentially as a married couple, Pat and Lou, um, but they weren't accepted by all the neighbors on our street. Uh, but my parents loved them. Uh, my brother and I loved them, um, you know, and on nights, when my parents would go out to dinner or to a party on their own and we needed a babysitter, um, they would usually take us over to Pat and Lou's house. And Lou did the cooking and he would cook for my brother and I and, you know, we'd hang out with them, watch TV shows, and they would eventually, like, put us to bed and wait, wait for my parents to come and pick us up. But the kind of crowning meal that Lou made was this really lavish like over the top um burger um and it was it was completely unlike food that my mom would make you know her food was um you know she was careful to make food that would be kind of nutritious in some way um and lou was 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 not bound by anything like that you know it was obviously food made by you know a man who didn't have to cook for children (laughs) and wasn't used to cooking (laughs) for children it was definitely like an adult burger, um, and it was, you know, highly seasoned. There was like, you know, Worcestershire sauce, um, uh, pr- probably like a seasoned salt in the meat, and then on the on on the burger on the bun would be, um, you know, a gob of rich caramelized onions, you know, hunks of blue cheese, and um, yeah, Dijon mustard. And it was delicious, you know, as a 10-year-old kid, it was something that I loved the taste of. Um, it was fascinating, just the the sort of depth and all these different flavors that would kind of explode. But it was like, you know, it was really hard for me. <laughs> it, it was hard to digest. It was hard to, it was it was so rich, it was, it was hard to eat. But mm. it, um, but it expressed everything that I felt was kind of wonderful and magical about 
um, about Pat and Lou and about about the way that they lived, you know, that was so unlike all of the other parents and families uh, on the block that I grew up with. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I've, those moments of food that, you know, connect to a deeper meaning. I know I, in my life, there's definitely been times where sharing a meal with someone um, who necessarily wasn't like my direct family, but it kind of shaped how I like saw the world. Um, you know, right. it's powerful. So, and, and yeah. I imagine, I know there's dishes that I adored as a kid and as like a early teen that I would go into restaurants and try to recreate. Did you ever, like, was that one of the first dishes you ever tried putting on a menu? Like, did that, did that dish stick with you when you started cooking or what was that like? Um, well, you know, I've, 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 I've always loved, um, I mean, I, I, I ended up sort of being like a burger purist, you know, like really, um, kind of caring about the meat and maybe the sort of mix of meats that, you know, that I could grind into some sort of perfect in quotes, perfect burger. Um, but I, but I, I, I do always love, I, I have always loved really strong flavors on burger. Um, you know, like blue cheese is, is, is extravagant, but, but, but perfect on a burger. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, you know, just as a, um, as a thing that kind of suggested this, um, this food of my past, but also kind of expressed a style of cooking from that period um, that I later, you know, felt a lot of nostalgia for, um, you know, that it was, you know, a recipe or a way of doing a burger that was probably developed. Um, it was very James Beard-like in a way. It was probably developed in the 19, you know, 50s and 60s when all of a sudden um, Americans were interested in a wider array of foods than they've had than they'd had before. You know, like something like imported cheese, you know, like a Roquefort or even a Danish blue, um, you know, imported French mustard. All these things really became part of kind of mainstream American diet. So in that respect, just as a piece of history, a piece of nostalgia, it really appeals to me. Um, I don't think I ever, when I was cooking, I don't think I ever put a burger as elaborate as that on the menu. Um, mm-hmm. although definitely I know that I've, that I did do burgers that, 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 that had blue cheese specifically. Um, but so yeah, just, just that kind of broad, um, kind of focus on kind of over the top pleasure. Um, has been something that I've been drawn to. No, that's awesome. Um, and, you know, talking about you getting into cooking and starting out in the profession, uh, how did you get into, be, like, what, when did you kind of realize you wanted to be a cook, be a chef? When did you realize you wanted to be in the food industry? Um, so, I, you know, as a, as a, as a teen, um, I never thought that I, well, I didn't really have any interest in cooking. Um, I had interest in certain cookbooks of my mom's, you know, I loved leafing through them. Occasionally I'd try a recipe. Um, but really I was more focused on, um, on, you know, fiction, you know, reading fiction and on kind of dreaming of being a writer. Um, although I, I feared that it was something that was way out of reach. I didn't really know how to try to become a writer. Um, Mm -hmm. but I went to, after high school, I went to, um, UC Berkeley and I, 
you know, decided to major in English. Um, it's kind of a secret way of, um, you know, trying to dream about being a writer. And um, <clears throat> after I, you know, I graduated with an undergraduate uh, degree and um, started working as a writer for this little magazine, nothing related to food, uh, in San Francisco. And um, someone took me, a friend took me, uh, a boyfriend took me to lunch at a restaurant that still exists in San Francisco called Greens uh, at Fort Mason. Um, it was a fairly new restaurant then. Uh, it was a vegetarian restaurant, but not like a, you know, not like a health food vegetarian restaurant, which, you know, this was like the early 1980s. So that was still um, unusual. Um, mm -hmm. But it was run by San Francisco Zen Center, and they 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 also owned um, a farm just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, where they grew um, a certain amount of the food that they served at the restaurant. Um, and I remember it was like a Saturday lunch. I went in. Um, the restaurant, you know, overlooks the 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 Golden Gate, so you can see the bridge. Uh, it's it's really beautiful, and you can in fact see the Marin headlands beyond which the, the, the restaurant's farm lies. So it seemed to have this connection with the farm. And then um, I ate the salad with, you know, lettuces that, that, had, that had been picked at the farm. Um, I, I'd never tasted anything like it. It was like this cliched food epiphany where, um, <laughs> you know, this, this, this one dish just, um, I mean, really, you know, as I say, it is a cliche, but it really did like change my life. I had so much curiosity about where all these ingredients came from. Um, it had apples, it had Stilton cheese. So, so there you go. There's more blue cheese in my, <laughs> in my past. Um, and it had this like shallot sherry vinaigrette, you know, like sherry vinegar um, vinaigrette. I never tasted anything like it. And so, um, that really started my, 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 my kitchen life, my cooking life. Um, I, I, I wrote to the restaurant after that lunch and asked if I could maybe volunteer there. Um, and eventually they let me work on Saturdays. Um, so I had my regular writing job, but then I would come in on Saturdays and do a little prep. Um, and yeah, you know, eventually they hired me full time and um, it, really was like an apprenticeship and that kind of started this um my you know career as a as a as a cook i i thought i would um really only cook for a year and then quit and you know write about the experience um but i ended up cooking you know in various kitchens for about 17 years before wow. i started writing yeah so what um what you know before you went into writing those seventeen years what did you you know take away from cooking I guess what if there was any one message that you got that you could share to the world in terms of being a cook being a chef what would you think that would be well um you know I started cooking obviously you know at a very specific moment in um, in food in San Francisco and the Bay Area so. I think it was, I think I started in 1984 and um, um, Green's restaurant where I started, um, it was, the opening chef there was a woman named um, Deborah Madison, 
who now writes cookbooks. She lives in uh, New Mexico. Um, and in, you know, at that time in the early 80s, there was a little wave of restaurants in San Francisco that kind of spun off from Chez Panisse uh, in some way or other. Uh, and Greens was one of them. Um, Deborah Madison had worked with Alice Waters. Um, she worked in the pastry department at Chez Panisse. And um, she became a practicing Zen, Zen priest, or she was at the time. And um, so she was a vegetarian. So she wanted to work at Chez Panisse, and they put her in the pastry kitchen. And eventually, San Francisco Zen Center um, wanted to open a restaurant, and they turned to Deborah Madison and asked if she would you know, open the kitchen, um, um, you know, be, be the opening chef for this new restaurant they had planned. And so Deborah had left when, when I started, but another woman took over in the kitchen, Annie Somerville. And there were a few other restaurants at the time, um, Joyce Goldstein at Square One, um, other restaurants, you know, eventually Judy Rogers, who took over the kitchen at Zuni Cafe. And so it was like a generation in San Francisco and the Bay Area of women chefs um, who were in charge of restaurants. Um, and they, you know, they took the kind of philosophy and the, a lot of the practices from Chez Panisse, um, which is they forged... Um, relationships with local farms. And this was, you know, this was long before the farmer's market movement. Um, it was really, you know, it was almost impossible to get great ingredients, you know, great ingredients as we think of them now. Um, mm-hmm. I remember stories that, you know, Deborah Madison would have to, you know, on a busy Saturday, the, you know, she'd be up at five in the morning to drive out to um, Stockton, someplace in the Central Valley of California, to go see a farmer, taste tomatoes, and haul them back to the restaurant. Um, wow! So you know, yeah, I mean, really, you know, the, there wasn't this whole um, system of um, you know farmers cooking for restaurants specifically. It was it was all kind of being being launched then. So I felt like I was lucky to be um, you know be able to witness this in some way. Um, and so that was really, you know, that, that was my takeaway from cooking and something that I always tried to sort of carry with me was that experience of, um, just really kind of, kind of radical, um, ingredient based cooking. Um, and, and also I have to say, uh, I, it was, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but much later, I, you know, a few years later, I realized that, um, that I had the privilege of being my first impression of kitchens were ones that were, that were run by women. Um, and so, you know, all of the, the sort of difficult kitchens, you know, ones run by, um, by men who were not very nice. <laughs> um, yeah. I didn't, I didn't have that experience, you know, that, that kind of brutal kitchen um, culture, um, I didn't have uh, a glimpse of that until until years later when I, you know, had to go work in other restaurants. So I think, um, um, yeah. So I felt like privileged to be to to start cooking, to learn cooking professionally at that kind of historical moment in that in that place. 
Okay. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, you know, part of me wishes I could have you know, seen that kind of all transform. Um, you know, obviously I mean, knowing... it, it. No, you go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was, I was going to say, I mean, there were, there were things about it that seemed, seemed kind of funny and ridiculous at the time, too. Like, um, I remember at Greens when I started, there would be like a weekly, a weekly kitchen meeting. Um, and, you know, most of the, most of the cooks were women. Um, as I say, it was, it was, it was, it was run by women. And, um, and so it would be like a weekly meeting for everyone to share for, for all the cooks. It was a back of house meeting for all the cooks to share, like how they felt about, you know, our food that week, um, how we felt about working that week. Um, if there were any, if there were any issues, um, you know, any kind of difficulties with our fellow cooks, we should, we should, we should air them, you know, we should talk about them. And we'd be doing this in the dining room, um, you know, doing, doing prep as this happens. So, you know, there'd be like a crate of, you know, tiny, tiny green beans that we'd have to tip or um, like in the fall, like, you know, a case of walnuts that we'd have to crack uh, from the shell. And these meetings, they would take forever. You know, it wouldn't be like, it would, you know, I remember it could take over an hour and, um, you know, people would air feelings. And so there'd be, there'd be crying. People would, would be, you know, angry. And, but it all seemed to, you know, get resolved at the end. So that was something, you know, it was a particular type of kitchen culture that is really kind of unworkable in some ways. Um, you know, cause you've got to, you know, at some point you got to put the, you know, the walnut cracker down and, um, you know, start, start getting ready for dinner. But, uh, <laughs> but it was, it was a great thing to be part of. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, I'm sure at the time it was so different from everything else going on. And even now, I mean, that is very rare to have uh, a kitchen, a staff sit down and have that kind of bond. Yes, there's very strong bonds today within our kitchen culture. But, you know, I never really worked at a restaurant that really had that, I want to say luxury, that kind of mandated like meeting every week where we sit down and talk. We definitely have creative meetings and stuff. But I think what you're talking about is more so like, kind of getting through the issues that, you know, needed to be, needed to be talked about, needed to be aired, um, which right, I think yeah. you know, would be very useful nowadays for some kitchens. Um, yes. But yeah, I mean, so thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, I personally think it's so interesting, um, you know, that era with Shea Panisse, Alice Waters, uh, Jeremiah Tower, he was actually one of the first guests on my podcast uh, when I started. Oh, this. wow. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Very, yeah, he's he was an interesting um, person to talk to. Really, just um, I don't know. I I feel like myself and a lot of cooks know of the era of that cooking, and we know that it was important. Yeah. But we don't really understand. At least I didn't really understand why. Um, and so, yeah, in right. talking with him, trying you know, learning, reading your book, James Beard, when it comes out, talking with you, just kind of preserving or keeping you know, the notion of how powerful that movement was because it defined kind of how we eat or, you know, certain trends that have become more powerful, you know, today even, so. Yeah, um, right. I mean, Jeremiah really, you know, he was he was kind of part of a, of a, of a new generation of, of chefs. I mean, um, you know, he really sort of professionalized um, 
the American kitchen or helped to kind of professionalize the American kitchen in a certain way. Um, you know, before, you know, as I say, I was, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was at Greens, um, you know, in a, in a very different kind of kitchen. And, you know, Jeremiah brought this kind of worldly sense of, um, you know, he knew, he knew restaurants in Paris and he knew, you know, he knew restaurants in New York. And um, so to, you know, San Francisco at the time, um, you know, because of, because of Chez Panisse and because of Alice Waters, it had a much more kind of rustic um, quality to, to the restaurants and the style of cooking and the culture of cooking that was happening in restaurants at the time. And Jeremiah just kind of brought this, you know, worldly kind of polish um, and kind of elegance to it, to it all. You know, it, it, it didn't necessarily sit very well um, with everybody in San Francisco, um, mm-hmm. you know, because um, he, you know, even though he really, you know, of course he got his start at Japanese um, as the chef there um, working with Alice, there were a lot of things about sort of Berkeley politics and San Francisco politics that he, that he didn't, that he didn't really like. <laughs> um, or <laughs> no. didn't feel comfortable with, and then he, you know, he felt like he wanted to stand in opposition to. But um, but yeah, it was a fascinating place and a fascinating time. Yeah, I mean, you know, just I mean, talking with him, you know, it was before. I think it was like a forty-five minute conversation, but you really got the sense of, you know, someone breaking into an industry and just, you know, a vision, just having a vision and like. Shape, trying to shape that industry into that vision um and you know more chefs Man. you know like we we were talk when we were talking when i would watch like his documentary you know not to fixate on him but he was kind of my entry point into kind of first-hand accounts of this time like wolfgang puck to me was a like growing up was a person like was someone who sold knives but his impact right. you yeah. know in the industry back then was profound and so it worried me i guess when i got into cooking and saw that like you know, I knew him. I thought he was just like some, you know, chef who was selling knives. I, you know, that's how it went growing up. My grandfather <laughs> adored him, but I thought it just because he sold good knives. I didn't know anything else about him. Um, right, like frozen, so, right, like frozen pizzas and stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that's why your work's so important with everything you're doing. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, I think when I. Um, when I interviewed Jeremiah, um, you know, for a pr- profile of him, I did for Eater, and then later for the, more recently for the um, James Beard biography. You know, Jeremiah, he, he he, in a certain way, he 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 was present at a at at a pivotal moment in American restaurants. Um, so you, you know. He, He'd been he'd been cooking at Chez Panisse and um, and he especially brought this kind of very French sensibility to the cooking. You know he loved um, you know he loved Fernand Point. He loved Escoffier. Um, you know he loved bringing this kind of style of Paris restaurants to Chez Panisse, which was a kind of you know difficult thing to manage. Um, and he would do these kind of lavish French regional menus. At Japanese, um, you know, like do, um, you know, 
do kind of menus based on the food of Normandy or, you know, Provence um, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And all, all of the menus would be written in French. You know, all of the dish names would be written in French. Um, and sort of talking to him, there, there was this, you know, the, this huge pivotal moment in 1976 where, you know, he'd been speaking with James Beard, who was a kind of mentor to Jeremiah Tower. And James Beard had kind of long before discovered that there were all these great regional ingredients in America. You know, really before that, the sort of best ingredients were, you know, thought of as, you know, primarily French, you know, caviar and foie gras and stuff that wasn't even being produced in the United States. And suddenly in 1976, um, under, under James Beard's influence, you know, Jeremiah Tower planned this Northern California regional dinner. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so he used, you know, not only used stuff from Northern California, but, you know, there was no French on the menu. You know, there was no French language on the menu. Um, and I know that Alice had been kind of wanting to banish French as well from the menu. And from that moment, you know, everything essentially was written in English. And there was this new sense, this new confidence in, um, you know, American food and American ingredients and really, you know, focusing on how um, a distinctive style of American cooking could emerge if you, you know, if you use local ingredients. <clears throat> yeah. So that was really, that was a really great kind of moment. You know, I, I consider that to be, you know, Jeremiah's kind of greatest achievement um, in really being there, um, you know, being, being present at that huge cultural shift in American restaurants. Yeah. And I think it's important to, you know, rec- you know, to have that recogni- recognition of that. Cause I feel I don't know. I feel with so much going on in the world and with, in terms of food and kind of how much has happened even in the last decade, uh, it's all starting, like it can feel like a blur sometimes. We can feel like, you know, we forget kind of what it took or what it meant to like have American cuisine evolve. Um, I do want to ask, right. uh, you know, for you, uh, you know, when, what, like what was your first food writing job? Cause obviously during this time period, you're, in, in, you're in California, you're in working in an area that was redefining the way Americans saw food. What was your food, first food writing job like? And kind of how did you venture from cook to writer? And did you ever, like, did you ever have any negative feelings towards it in terms of like kind of leaving the kitchen to go become a writer? Yeah, I, you know, I had, I probably should have left the kitchen, you know, years before that I actually did. Um, you know, I ended up leaving the kitchen in 2002, um, you know, for good. And, um, you know, the last, the last few years of my, of my cooking career, I was, you know, I, I was, I was definitely not feeling it, but I was, I was just too afraid to make a change. Um, and I was kind of ignoring, you know, ignoring the voice in my head that was saying, you know, this is not fresh anymore. You're not, you, you know, you're not giving this everything, you know, in the way that you used to. Um, mm-hmm. And so it wasn't the best, the best time in my life. And I was taking jobs, you know, I just felt like if I took a job and held on to it for a year that I was okay. Um, but it was, I didn't really have any aspirations beyond that. 
really I wanted to write, but I was just too afraid to to make the move. Um, when I was still cooking, I had I did I did a little bit of writing. Um, you know, there were a bunch of kind of weekly newspapers, um, you know, independent weeklies that were being published in San Francisco. So I wrote a few pieces for, um, or I wrote quite a few pieces for um, an LGBT uh, weekly paper in San Francisco called The Sentinel. And so Mm -hmm. um, that was, um, I had a good editor who, you know, like typically like gay papers, did not really focus on food at all. You know, they'd be about sort of politics uh, and news and then about, you know, like clubs and bars and nightlife. Um, and they didn't really focus on food. So my editor sort of wanted me and helped me to kind of carve out this, like, you know, what would what would gay food coverage be like? Um, you know, if you were writing about food for a queer publication, what, what would that, you know, what would you write about? So, um, so that was great. And then, um, yeah, I just, um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to try writing full time. And, um, yeah, in 2002, um, my partner at the time and my husband just, he was like, you know, you've been wanting to do this for a long time. Um, why don't you, you know, quit your job and see if you can sell some stories and, um, make a go of it. So he really, he really, you know, supported me and helped me through the transition. Um, I, you know, I didn't at all know what I was doing. I, I, I cooked for many years, so I felt like I had a lot to say about cooking and I could, you know, I could, I could write recipes. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, uh, I just wrote some stories. The first piece that I wrote was about, um, was about bay leaves (laughs) <laughs> um, and specifically the the kind of difference between like European bay leaves and California bay leaves. And I kind of shopped it around. Um, and finally, an editor at the um, Mercury News in San Jose kind of liked it. And um, so I started I started writing uh, some feature stories for her, um, you know, ones ones that included recipes. And um, my first the first real gig that I got was about a year and a half after that, um, the, um, another kind of Bay Area regional daily newspaper, Contra Costa Times, uh, the editor there asked if um, I would be the restaurant critic there. So that was, that was amazing. That was an amazing gig. So, that, so I did that for two years. I wrote a, um, a weekly restaurant column. And um, it just kind of, it took off slowly from there. Um, you know, I hadn't... I was used to not being all that well paid, you know, coming from the kitchen. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, with my with my partner, you know, being being willing to support us, um, I felt like it was, you know, I could sort of take a chance and and try to make a go of it, and um, and you know, and then really the the main thing is finding good editors, you know, like finding editors who believe in you, um, who like hear something in your voice and will kind of help you, you know, kind of, kind of allow you to, to, to find your own voice. Um, and so that was, that was really, 
that was a huge part of being able to, you know, transition to being a writer. Um, eventually, after that, I, I got my, a full-time staff job as a writer um, with an independent weekly based in Oakland um, called the East Bay Express. And, yeah, from there it was just um, trying to, you know, trying to find a voice and just trying to write, write food pieces that I felt were, were important, that could make a difference, um, that, you know, kind of reflected the experience of being in the kitchen in some way, even, mm-hmm. even though they may not be, have been explicitly about working in kitchens. Um, you know, for instance, doing restaurant reviews in a way, since I had, since I had cooked for so long and since I had, you know, I'd been the subject of, or, you know, kitchens I'd worked in, I'd been the subject of restaurant reviews. I knew what I thought was unfair about them. Um, <laughs> and so I tried <laughs> to write, write from a perspective of really appreciating all the work that went into mm-hmm. restaurant food. Um, you know, even if I particularly, if, if I didn't particularly like a restaurant um, experience that I had and had to write about, um, you know, I felt like I needed to acknowledge that, you know, people worked really hard and that it wasn't, you know, it probably wasn't because someone was just, didn't care, was being lazy or something. There were all sorts of complicated things that could go wrong that could translate to, 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 to a bad meal. Yeah. Um, I mean, you shared in the, in your one excerpt that, uh, you know, having the responsibility to cover San Francisco weighed on you like a double creative asparagus. Um, what was it like? I mean, I know like, I would be so nervous to go from cook to critiquing uh, restaurants in my area. Uh, I'm from Buffalo, New York. So like, if I were, you know, I've, I've been a cook here and to go to, you know, reviewing them. I know you went at it in a different way that, that you thought was fair, but were you still nervous to kind of, I mean, I'm sure you had to review people that you knew, right? Or how was that? What was that experience like? You know, um, you know, because the Bay Area, well, you know, I was, I was really like at the bottom. I was really on the bottom rung of 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 any kind of prestige in terms of being a restaurant critic. Um, you know, there were still all these thriving newspapers in the Bay Area. So, you know, the San Francisco Chronicle obviously had the big premier critic, um, you know, Michael Bauer. You know, he was the most influential critic. You know, he could definitely, you know, kind of make or break a restaurant's fortunes. Um, I, you know, I started by writing for basically suburban papers. Um, So I was, you know, I'd be writing about food in towns um, that weren't San Francisco. So, um, so I didn't really know people in kitchens that I was reviewing um, because really nobody I knew you know, would be working in a, in a kitchen in like Concord, California, or like Walnut Creek. So that gave me sort of freedom to do that. Also, you know, my inclination, I, I, I kind of disliked writing about, um, well, I, I just preferred writing about sort of cheaper food anyway, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, really the thing that I loved about the job was sort of, you know, like driving around, um, you know, like trying 10 taquerias and 
trying to find something that I thought was great or that had a great story and that I wanted to write about, you know, like beauty of places or um, pho places or something like that. Mm. So, um, and then when I did get a job in, you know, as with um, San Francisco Weekly, um, I was never then the, the main restaurant critic, although I did have to do, I was the, the editor of their, of their food coverage, their food editor, I guess. Um, so I did have to write about places, but I wasn't the primary critic. So that kind of gave me freedom to write about what I wanted to either, you know, particular dishes that I thought were great. Um, I don't recall really having an experience where I had to write about somebody's, you know, the, the food of somebody I knew, mm-hmm. somebody who I had been cooking who, who I cooked with. So I was, I was, I was free. I was free of that. It was more, um, you know, that was more a process of just kind of finding a food beat. Um, and fortunately when I was there, the, it was kind of like during the great recession. Um, and it was a really tough, tough time for chefs, uh, and restaurants. Um, and certain chefs, um, you know, instead of being able to get investors to open restaurants, they just started started cooking on the street. Um, there was this kind of like guerrilla street food movement in San Francisco uh, that was like illegal. Um, but, you know, <laughs> on a Friday night, a bunch of people would, you know, show up uh, in a park in the Mission and sell food. And so that, um, I got to cover that. And that was, that was really um you know, an exciting time. It was very raw. And um, I think I enjoyed that much more than, you know, if I'd had to go to, you know, all of the new openings and, and sort of write about them. So. Okay. Um, that's, that's interesting. I mean, you know, it's, it's just cool for me to, to kind of talk to you about that. Cause I feel like, I feel like every chef in some way might want to I know I think it would be cool to be a restaurant critic merely for the fact that you'd kind of get like, for me, I love going out to eat and I would love mm-hmm. to like write about it. I know that there's probably a lot more, just like how someone says, Oh, I love to cook. And you know that they have no idea right, yeah. what cooking is. I'm sure that's yeah. how I sound to you right now. Um, but it does seem like something that, you yeah. know, would be enjoyable at some, you know, at least at some points. It's, it's, I mean, it's, um, I mean, first of all, if you're if you're a restaurant critic and you and you complain about it to people, you know, you you just sound like a like a, like a biggest ass. You know, <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, I can't believe I have to go. You know, if 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 you say that to people who haven't done the work, then they don't. You know, you just sound really bad and entitled. Um, but you know, it's it's as much as it is about eating, um, it's really about writing and about deadlines. Um, and so the you know, the big, you know, my biggest experience of it was that it was about, it was just about the stress and pressure of making deadlines um, and of having something original to say, some kind of original point of view every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's just a lot about eating out that can be tedious, um, you know, from, you know, finding people to go out to eat with you um you know, so you can try a bunch of dishes, you know, you want to eat with, with a bunch of people. And at first it's easy, but then after you've done it for like a year, people are like, yeah, it's a Tuesday night. I don't think I want to go to 
you know, some Italian restaurant in Concord. And, <laughs> um, you know, I think I'm going to pass. So it, you know, so it becomes about like logistics and scheduling, um, you know, dinners out. Um, but, you know, it, you know, for me, it definitely had great moments and, you know, that was sort of getting insight into people's stories, um, you know, chefs, cooks, restaurant owners, um, just places that really, you know, they're just places that really speak to you and you feel, um, even though you're supposed to be a critic, you, you know, you want them to do well. Um, you know, you you become a kind of supporter. Um, so yeah, the, it has, it's a, it's, it's, it's a strange job. Um, and it has a lot of, you know, it's a grind in a lot of ways, um, mm-hmm. but it, it, but it has, but it has some really great, great moments. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I do want to get into kind of the two pieces of work that you, you know, won James Beard awards for, and I think they're so important. I think that would be a good pivot into, you know, a big discussion that I'd like to have with you in terms of, um, just our, I guess, understanding everyone in the kitchen, understanding what kitchen culture is and how we can improve it. Um, and I want to start with the Lucky Peach article you wrote and kind of, I know you mentioned it before in the show, but what the inspiration behind that was, kind of how you thought of writing that article and why you felt that you needed to, you know, write that article. Yeah, so the, the piece was um, is um, called um, America, Your Food is So Gay. Um, it appeared in tw- 2013 in Lucky Peach um, in the print the print edition before there was a, a Lucky Peach website. Um, and yeah, in case anybody doesn't know Lucky Peach, I think it launched in maybe 2011. Um, you know, David Chang, uh, some editors uh, in both San Francisco and New York started this kind of literary food magazine that I think really changed everything. Um, and so, yeah, I, um, I, um, they had, they had, they had themed, themed issues. Um, and so there was an upcoming issue that I heard about from the, from an editor, Chris Ying, uh, and it was about gender. And the th- I had written one, one story before for Lucky Peach, um, and, um, the thing about Lucky Peach is that it was, you know, especially in the first couple of years, um, it was basically um, a kind of magazine of chef culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it reflected everything that was good and maybe not so good about chef culture. Um, and primarily it was, it was mostly, it was mostly male. Um, it had mostly male writers, either food writers or actual chefs who wrote pieces. Um, so it, it kind of reflected, uh, it was, it was a fairly narrow, um, you know, pool of, you know, point of view, I guess. Um, and one, one thing that struck me is that, um, it, there, there were no queer voices or not very prominent voices who had written pieces, um, for Lucky Peach. And so I had been thinking for a while about the influence of, um, these kind of closeted or semi-closeted um, influential people in American food in the 20th century, food writers, um, James Beard, Craig Claiborne, and Richard Olney, um, who really did shape 
uh, you know, American food in the, the the second half of the 20th century. Would you and mind how they were uh, gay? And so I, I would you mind giving just yeah. a brief description? I mean, obviously James Beard, but if you wanted to, if you could just give like a minute description of each or a short bio, so because I know a lot of listeners probably might not know uh, those names, and I think it would be good context. Sure. Yeah. So um, yeah. So James Beard, obviously, um, sort of. Um, you know, influential from the 19, late 1940s. Uh, he died in 1985. And for a couple of generations of Americans, he really kind of defined this notion of American food. Um, he wrote a lot of cookbooks. Um, he had this kind of famous cooking school out of his house in New York City. Um, and he was really, you know, he was like large. He was a large man, um, tons of personality. And he was really like this household name for you know, American home cooks. And then starting in the 1970s, he really um, influenced this young group of, this young generation of chefs who who really did change American food. So, you know, before you mentioned like Wolfgang Puck, um, definitely Jeremiah, Jeremiah Tower and Alice Waters, Larry Forgione, um, this generation of cooks who did what came to be known as new American cooking, which was to you know, take some more traditional types of American cooking and just really, um, you know, make them new, like infuse them with this new energy, new spirit, really focusing on, you know, artisanal American ingredients, Mm -hmm. all the stuff that was exploding at the time, you know, like people making cheese, you know, in in the United States and, um, you know, you know, the California wine scene and, 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 and all that. So James Beard was really influential there. Um, Craig Claiborne, for for decades, he was the food editor of the New York Times um, and the main food 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 critic of the New York Times. So you know, arguably the most influential critical voice in American food from the mid 1950s until the early 1980s. And then the last one is Richard Olney, who's probably less less well known. Um, Richard Olney wrote a couple of really influential books. They were hugely influential on um, a generation of chefs. One was called The French Menu Cookbook. The other one is um, called Simple French Food. Um, and uh, they were, you know, Olney really influenced Alice Waters um, hugely. Um, he lived in the South. He was American, but he lived in the South of France in this old farmhouse and, um, you know, just cooked you know, went to the market and cooked. Alice Waters visited him, you know, many times and kind of helped develop this kind of notion of food that we, you know, came to know as farm to table. So these, 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 so these three kind of writers were really influential and, you know, all of them, all of them were gay and all of them had to hide that fact in some way. Um, And so I was thinking how, much American chef culture at the time was really, um, you know, I, I had experienced, you know, homophobia working in kitchens. And so really as a sense of, I felt this sense of injustice that I wanted to correct. And so I wanted to write this piece that was said basically, Hey, you know, um, you know, all of the food that you guys are cooking, you know, these voices reflected in Lucky Peach, these male chef voices, you know, all of this 
um, food culture that you've inherited was basically, you know, built by um, closeted, closeted gay men. So, um, yeah, so that was that was really the impetus for that piece. Um, really? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, when <laughs> reading that article, kind of realizing that, you know, it's kind of crazy to think about um, the impact those three in particular had. And like you said, them, you know, probably facing a lot of, in their time, homophobia, um, you know, being gay. And I know, you know, you share that James Beard, not until like later in his career, really did he, um, I guess, kind of share that with, you know, the general population. Uh, yet we praise their work. And yeah. it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that they had to hide who they were while sh- shaping and shifting an industry in ways that we praise today. Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, um, yeah, James Stewart never, never came out in, in, in his lifetime. It was only after he died. Really? That, um, yeah. Somebody wow. surfaced like, a yeah, an older. So anyway, um, yeah, was, you know, it was, it was a generation for which there was just a lot of, a lot of fear and a lot of stigma, um, that, you know, even after the sort of queer liberation movement of the 1970s, it just it just lingered and um you know these you know these 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 writers made their living selling cookbooks and it would have really i think damaged their careers if they had if they had been able to come out as well so you know the publishing industry didn't didn't want them to didn't want them to come out so it was kind of you know, the New York publishing and food world knew, for instance, that James Beard and Craig Claiborne were gay, but it was this, it was this, it was, it had to be a secret. And everybody kind of conspired to keep it a secret because the, the, the repercussions on people's careers would have been huge. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's just a very strange and different time. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I, I felt... Like I wanted to express that, you know, I wanted to, um, I wanted to, I wanted people to be aware that of this, um, you know, of this fact of kitchen culture um, and of American food culture, um, you know, that it was, the, it, there's this, a great book by an author named David Camp called The United States of Arugula, um, which is sort of a history of American, I guess, gourmet food culture um, from, you know, the mid the mid 20th century to the end of the 20th century. Um, and, you know, really kind of American food culture was really created in many ways by people who were not, who were kind of, you know, considered misfits, <laughs> I guess, um, mm-hmm. you know, to their own generation people who didn't sort of fit comfortably into, into, um, you know, into American, into American society. Um, you know, even somebody like, you know, Julia Child was, uh, you know, as kind of great and wonderful as she was, um, you know, she's very quirky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. And so that was, that was really, um, so I wrote that piece, uh, America, your food is so gay. And I, I also talked about my own uh, experience. You know, we already talked about Pat and Lou, the kind of gay men who I grew up knowing. 
um, and the way that that food was an influence in their in their lives and in their in their house and this kind of focus on food as uh, a vehicle of of pleasure which was which was really the kind of new idea that these three food writers really helped um, helped Americans accept um, you know food in America before them was very different you know it was about um, you know economy it was about it really wasn't focused on um, on 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 pleasure for its own sake um, you know for for just you know coming together around the table and really just enjoying the taste of food mm-hmm. um, that was that was kind of a, a kind of alien concept in American culture before you know before the 1950s um, and you know of course we all you know anyone who who cooks um, you really in, in the United States has really kind of inherited that sense you know those were those were ideas that were central to food in places you know in other places you know yeah. in, you know in Japan and um, you know in in China and you know certainly in like France France and Italy um, so what was I mean they were obviously yeah. obviously I know you um you got a James Beard award and um you know it was well received the article in Lucky Peach um but what was your I guess what was your reaction what was the reaction from cooks in the industry or chefs in the industry or just industry people in general was it mostly positive was there people that were like you know, mind blown in a bad way, like, oh my, like, you're totally got this wrong, or did people kind of recognize, like I did, like, wow, this actually makes, like, this this is true, and, like, this makes sense, and, like, this is, you know, it's, you know, what was that reaction like uh, in terms of the response you got? It, it, it was really, like, all, all positive. Um, you know, the, the people who I, who I heard from were, um, <clears throat> were, were uh, primarily people who, um, you know, restaurant, um, queer restaurant cooks who, um, you know, who were, who were, who were grateful, uh, who sort of expressed, you know, I remember someone saying, oh, I've, I've been, um, <clears throat> I've been waiting, I've been waiting for somebody to say this, um, you know, and I think there was a sense of people who reached out to me um, cooks who reached out to me, um, who were who were grateful, um, who felt like they had worked as I had in kitchens where um, it might have been difficult to be to be queer, um, and who felt a certain amount of pride to have it be acknowledged more generally that um, you know that queer people really helped shape the sort of culture of food and restaurants that everybody was working in. Mm. Um, you know, it's a sense, a sense of kind of reclaiming something of, um, saying, you know, this, I've, you know, maybe I've, I've been silent in the kitchen. Maybe I, I haven't been comfortable being truly authentic in the kitchen. Um, you know, certainly maybe I've had to endure, um, you know, homophobia in the kitchen. And so now this is this is an acknowledgement that not only do we belong here, but we we helped shape 
we helped shape this in a big way. Um, so yeah, I was I was really amazed at how much feedback I got that was that was like that that was from kind of grateful uh, cooks who um, who were glad that that this that this story was being told. And that ties into kind of your second article as well, straight up passing. Um, kind of what was that process like in terms of writing? Um, uh, you know, definitely different stories, different outlooks, and um, really intriguing kind of. What you, what you were kind of writing about in terms of that feeling of not really feeling like you were able to, you know, kind of be your true self in a kitchen environment, which is, you know, it's for me, it's like angry. Like, you know, I run this page, you know, to promote all cooks and to, and I know it still happens today. And I know that, you know, a decade ago or two decades ago, it was worse than it is today, but it still is very real today. Um, so you sharing that I'm sure had a profound impact. What was the second piece um, I guess, where did that come from or what made you write that piece? Yeah. So, so, so straight up passing, that was, um, you know, even before I wrote um, America, your food is so gay. I, I had been wanting to, to write a piece that was more about my experience about being gay and cooking um, and experiencing homophobia in kitchens that I had worked in. And even if it wasn't um, kind of dramatic homophobia, you know, like, um, um, you know, like straight up abuse or something like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, threats, threats or physical abuse or something like that, just more of a sense of um, a, a kind of more kind of subtle um, sense of homophobia that I experienced. Um, and I, it, it was a hard piece to write. I had kind of walked away from it because I felt um, it was too, I was too close to it myself. Hmm. Um, I started talking to other other cooks and other chefs, um, and I, I kind of started with a question, um, which was sort of, you know, why why you know when when so many other um, realms of American life, even to some extent professional sports. Um, <clears throat> when people were coming out in these other realms of American life, um, why was there still this kind of stigma about being queer in the kitchen, um, especially in um, in fine dining? It seemed like much more in fine dining there was a, a lot of stigma about being queer. Mm-hmm. And people who were, you know, cooks and chefs who were who lived open lives who lived out out lives were less out in 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 the kitchen um you know maybe they didn't really want to talk about being queer um in the in that context so i wanted to see why that why that was so it was more of a reported piece so i spoke i spoke with chefs i spoke with cooks um some some off the record um and it that was um, that was definitely a harder piece to write, and I I got um, I I got lots of supportive comments from people who cook, mm-hmm. um, you know, who would then sort of opened up and told me more stories about things that they'd experienced in the kitchen, um, and then I also I got some pushback from other people, like, well, you know, I work. You know, I'm queer. I work in the kitchen. You know, 
maybe somebody who even, you know, ran, ran, ran kitchens and was like, you know, I, you know, I don't tolerate anything like this in my kitchen. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's open, you know, you know, I don't put up with that shit. Um, And so, you know, I know that, um, you know, my experience in the kitchen had been at a different time. Um, I did interview people who were, you know, cooking now or at the time that I wrote the piece and, you know, they were relating what was going on for them. Um, I think it it, it, it is a sense where, you know, sometimes, um, you know, very often homophobia can be pretty subtle. Um, And if you don't happen to be queer, you may not catch it. Yeah. Um, You know, it could just seem, it could just seem like normal. Um, you know, there's just lots of things, you know, lots of microaggressions and stuff like that, that, that just, that, that people experience. Um, and I know for a lot of queer people in the kitchen who I spoke with for for the piece, um, I think almost everybody went through this process of feeling like, well, um, is this really happening? You know, is this, you know, am I being too sensitive or, um, you know, or is there, or is there really homophobia in this kitchen? Um, you know, because just because of the dynamics of the, of, you know, the, the sort of team dynamics in a kitchen, Mm -hmm. um, it's very difficult to, you know, it's very difficult to, to, um, you know, to be the, to be the person who kind of speaks up, you know, who doesn't fit in, um, you know, who's, who's, who's kind of, um, yeah, so is 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 a difficult piece to report, and in some ways a difficult piece to write. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, obviously I don't know what it's like um, to be in that position, but you share something in the piece that I think not a lot of people realize, and it's this idea. You know, mo- uh, most restaurants are based on this hierarchy, and if you end up, you know, for some places, not all, but some. If you end up saying, like, you know, I feel this way about how a cook acted or how a sous chef acted, you almost become ostracized or you almost become, like, it, it pretty much stunts your growth, you know? And this hierarchy can be very, you know, while it's been good and progress, I guess, and efficiency can also be very devastating to careers when people aren't really with the perceived norm in a certain kitchen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's right. It's such a, the, the team dynamic can, can be, you know, as we know, that's, that's what can make a great kitchen and can produce great, great food. Um, but it's very, you know, conformity is, is, is a really, is a really hard thing when you feel, when you feel that you can't, um, you know, that, that you can't express yourself in some, in some fundamental way. Um, I was, I'm, I'm, I happen to be reading, uh, Dirt by Bill Buford right now. Um, so, um, Bill, Bill's, Bill wrote Heat, the sort of piece about Italian cooking. Um, and so this is his most, most recent book. And, you know, basically he, he packs up his family and they go to live in France. He wants to kind of, you know, cook in French restaurants, kind of learn the essence of, French food. So he goes to Lyon and, um, you know, gets to work in some restaurants there. And it was, 
it's kind of amazing. I mean, he, you know, he had this experience a few years ago, but just the atmosphere that he describes in some of these pretty, you know, these very traditional French kitchens, uh, it was really kind of astonishing that, you know, that people are still doing this, you know, still like physically abusing, you know, stagiaires and, um, you know, just as this kind of way of, you know, like, this is how you learn, you know, you, you get, you know, thrown up against the wall and, um, you know, you get like verbally abused, um, if you make a small mistake. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hate that. I mean, you know, in running, so Ryan Cook Thoughts will be two years old in December and, um, it's, I, I, you know, not the first to realize the issues of the kitchen, but I really detest the, um, this kind of, the kind of angry yelling culture, um, kind of, I don't know. I shared this tweet and I shared on my Instagram too, uh, about two weeks ago. And it's that, this idea I've had for a while. Um, I just verbalized it recently is, you know, if you know, we, if we're going to be seen as an industry of professionalism, of caring for each other, we need to lose that, that outlaw mentality. Like, yes, we all are here because we didn't, fit into a specific norm of society or a specific way of, you know, living regular American life. But the outlaw mindset, I believe, is very detrimental. And I shared this on Instagram and was met with a lot of uh, a lot of pushback. You know, a lot of people telling me that, you know, I don't know what it means to be a cook or, you know, stuff, weird stuff like Anthony Bourdain would be ashamed and, um, you know, people not even know mm, it, yeah. you know, you know, just like stuff like that. And it's so, it's you know, not and I don't ever want to fault anyone for seeing you know everyone has different ways of seeing the kitchen i don't ever condone negative actions or harmful actions but you know there is there are people who have been led so far in their career thinking that this is how you need to be because that's how they're that's who's influenced them and you know i understand that sharing that stuff is going to draw heat but it's necessary in sharing and i don't know what your view is on kitchen culture and i feel like we kind of share the same view but if you wanted to talk on that um because it's something that i've always i feel like i'm always arguing with cooks about or sharing and i'm like i like it i like the conversations of trying to switch people's perspective on it but i'd love to hear your side of it yeah i, I think um i just think of a piece uh it's a piece that david chang wrote um i think it appeared in lucky peach um but yeah when when um it was it was it was a few years ago and it was a time when when um, you know, in the context of kind of women in the kitchen, um, it was just in the context of um, you know abusive abusive male chefs mm-hmm. um, and the that sort of culture in the kitchen. And Chang said something like, um, you know, when he when he was when he was a bit younger, um, you know, sometimes he 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 felt like he needed to keep his edge. Um, you know, he felt like being, um, you know, maybe verbally abusive sometimes to, to a cook was, um, if he didn't do that, then he, then he would lose his edge. Um, you know, the kitchen would lose its edge, you know, his yeah. food, his food would start to suck. You know, it's like, it's this whole, um, it's this whole, um, 
you know, basically discipline that you, you know, if, if, if there's one crack in the discipline, then, then, then the whole thing is going to come crashing down and ultimately, you know, your food will suck. Um, and so he said, you know, that was, that, that was a difficult thing to get over. You know, it was, he, he was, he was, it, it was so fundamental to the way that, that he was brought up in the kitchen and, you know, so fundamental to the, the ethos of the kitchens that he, that he had worked in, that it was, you know, when he became a chef, he felt like he needed to do it. And if he didn't do it, then he wouldn't be a good chef. Um, so yeah, definitely a difficult thing, I think, for certain people to, to unlearn, um, you know, to let go. Um, I think Red Zeppi has said, had, has said something similar. Like if you, you know, you're just trained in this way that if you, if you are soft, quote unquote, if you, if you let go, then you'll, then, then you'll, then you'll lose your edge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and And of course, you know, no, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just a ridiculous, a ridiculous notion, but (laughs) yeah. Um, you know, as I, as crazy as this might sound, I mean, maybe not to you, um, but, you know, I entered the kitchen, or I entered, I entered the culinary arts thinking I had a yell at Gordon Ramsay, um, thinking that, like, at some point I would, you know, have to, that kind of establishment was set up, and I learned over time, obviously, that that wasn't true, um, and, you know, but the, the biggest, the most pivotal moment of my career where I, um, I noticed that there was something wrong is actually when I saw Anthony Bourdain live. Um, I was at the Colonial Institute of America. I was going to school there and I, he had come for the bachelor's graduation speech in 2018 or 2017. Um, and I had snuck into the auditorium. I wasn't supposed to be there. Um, and I listened to him talk and his whole speech was pretty much him saying like, you know, I know you and he directed it mainly to the men in the room. He, and you can go like, those are his exact words. Like, he spoke to us and I mean, he spoke to everyone, but he specifically spoke to this culture and acknowledging that in some way, you know, unintentionally or intentionally created this like, you know, bad boy persona. And obviously this culture that maybe people have taken too far and that we have a responsibility as a next generation of cooks and leaving the school, becoming cooks in the industry to fix the issues of the past and to reshape what it does mean to be a chef and reshape culture. And, you know, I think that's where I get most frustrated is it was out of his mouth. Like it was him that like it was his words that made me like really believe that this change could happen. And so I just get frustrated with the argument that like Bourdain wouldn't be proud of, of like what you say, because like he's like he like he recognized that. And like for me, that was so impactful. And as a young cook, it was so instrumental to understanding that this, although it's glorified, it isn't right to be treated like to have a whole industry like that right and and i mean i think it raises the question of what is you know what 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 does success mean you know what is what is being a, a, a successful chef a successful leader in the kitchen what what does that mean is it that you know that 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 the that the food is that the food is perfect always um or does it mean something else? I mean, you know, if the if the cost of consistency and perfection is, um, you know, that you're that you're, you know, contributing to to the unhappiness 
of the people who work for you, you know, sort of crippling them in some way, in a way that you yourself were crippled, you know, is that really success? You know, is, is that, is, is that what this is all about? Um, you know, I have a, a, a good friend uh, who's a chef in Oakland, James Siabut, and he's, you know, for, for him, um, I've watched him sort of have, have a different kind of success. I mean, of course, he's extremely focused on his food. Uh, his restaurant, Komi in Oakland, has two Michelin stars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his food has this beautiful, beautiful edge to it. But I mean, for him, he sees, he sees his role, um, you know, not only as making sure that the, that the food is great, that the staff is working, um, you know, to its, to its best potential, but, but that he's, he's really bringing up, um, you know, the next generation, you know, that, that he's, that part of his, part of his legacy is kind of mentoring and nurturing uh, a generation of cooks and not, not, not to be, you know, not in an, in this atmosphere of abuse, but to, you know, really nurture a generation of cooks who are, you know, working their best potential, who are, who are being, who are being creative. Um, that, that, that I'm, I so admire that about him. You know, he, he, he has this expansive notion of, of what, what his role is and what success looks like. Yeah. I mean, that's great to hear. I mean, I've been very lucky to have uh, mentors, you know, my mentor, uh, a chef, the chef I worked for who really got me into like fine dining. He actually took me to the beard house, Ross. He used someone who, Exactly like that. I, I've been very lucky to where I have not had a role model or someone who is that negative, like, chef that you would think of in the industry. But, you know, I recognizing it's there and recognizing and seeing already, like, going to school and hearing my friends who were 18, 19 already experienced stuff like that, you know, it, it was troubling. And so, I mean, I wanted to get into, you know, really quickly before, because um, I, I don't want to you know, take up too much of your time. I'm grateful that you're talking to me this long. Um, but Bourdain for me is, I don't know if you could tell, was someone who was so inspirational to being a voice for the cook. When he passed, it was very hard for me to accept that because I didn't know anyone else who had such a strong voice with cooks. What was your time, you know, with writing about him, uh, spending some time with him, what was his impact in kind of your eyes and what was it like to write about Bourdain and his impact and what he meant to cooks in the, you know, in our industry. You know, he, um, yeah, he, uh, let's see, my experience of him was, you know, of course, when I was writing, um, and he had, he had, um, seen or been made aware of some pieces that I had written. Um, and it seemed like he went out of his way to, um, to compliment me on, on those pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once when he was kind of filming, um, an early season and, you know, saw, saw something that I'd written about Oakland, um, you know, about Oakland taco trucks, um, <clears throat> and just kind of reaching out and saying, Hey, that was, that was a really good piece, you know, keep it up. Um, and feeling like, you know, somebody of his, of his, of his fame and stature, you know, he didn't, 
he didn't need to reach out to, you know, this little food writer in Oakland, California, um, with some kind of words of encouragement. Um, and that, and that happened a few more times with pieces that I wrote profile. I wrote of Jeremiah tower and, um, there was just, there just seemed to be like a, uh, like a generosity, um, you know, using his platform to bring attention to other other voices um that just felt like 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 an incredibly like generous move um and i was i was really impressed by that and it made me feel like you know if you do achieve some sort of um you know fame in you know either either in the kitchen or in writing about food, that it's your responsibility to actually, you know, pay that, <clears throat> pay that forward with other people, um, you know, to like bring attention to people who don't, who don't have, have, you know, nearly the platform that you have. Um, you know, he, in the times that I met him, he just seemed incredibly, incredibly kind, very, um, you know, his sort of public voice, which, you know, could be, you know, part of the charm of Anthony Bourdain was his, um, you know, iconoclastic, um, you know, kind of, kind of snappy voice. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, in, in person, when, when I met with him, he was just very gentle, very kind, um, just very, you know, just a very, just a very real, just a very real person. Um, yeah, I, I felt, I felt his loss, you know, like a lot of people, I felt his loss really deeply. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's a hard thing just kind of knowing what, how he made, you know, he, he made the lives of, of, of cooks and food writers better. Mm -hmm. Um, just by just just by you know respecting them you know like showing them respect um, it's you know it's it's a very sad thing to 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 know that, that ended <clears throat> yeah no definitely and you know, I think you were sharing that and I think that was the biggest that was the biggest thing for me you know the importance and stress that he put on um, respecting cooks and like dishwashers and everyone in the kitchen that had such a large impact on me that I, you know, that's part of the reason I created this. Um, but, you know, thank you for sharing that. Um, and, you know, getting into our last bit of the interview, uh, the reason, you know, the reason I first reached out to you, uh, was this book you're writing. Um, you know, it, it comes out October 6th. It is the man who ate yeah, too much, right. the life of James Beard. And I'd love to know what made you write this book, what the process has been like, and, you know, we talked before the episode what James Beard meant to cooks, but if you wanted to go through kind of your inspiration for writing it, the process of, I imagine it was a lot of work to find out all this information and then we can kind of get into his impact for cooks. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, it's basically an outgrowth of that, that, that earlier essay, America, your food is so gay. Um, you know, I couldn't stop thinking about James Beard. Um, he seemed like this really, pivotal character. Um, so I wanted to know more about him. Um, I started, it took me about three, I guess three and a half years to, to research and write the book. Wow. Um, yeah, there was, there was a lot, there were like two, two, two pretty much solid years of research. 
um, you know, looking looking through archives, you know, NYU and uh, in Portland, Oregon, where he was from, um, you know, like interviewing people, there there aren't that many people left who knew him. I mm-hmm. died in '85, um, and so really, really like digging into the archives, um, you know, going through his kind of notebooks uh, and trying to decipher them. And you know, I was really trying to understand um, this sort of complicated, this kind of complicated mind. Um, you know, somebody who changed American food so dramatically, um, and while you know, basically living in secret, um, you know, being being famous and yet being and yet having to live in secret, um, and it was. You know, when you're writing, I discovered that writing about somebody who was gay and who wasn't out <laughs> at the time, that, um, you know, part of what he did is he just kind of destroyed a lot of things that he thought would have been incriminating. So as a biographer, when you're subject, you know, there aren't a lot of surviving um, kind of intimate letters. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> For instance, you know, it's it's kind of an act of like archaeology to try to find clues, um, you know, try to find pieces of a person's life that really tells her story. Um, and it was, you know, he had he did have a tremendous impact on on as I say as I said um, a, a a generation of chefs who really started to cook in some American idiom. Um, you know, the, when, when they, you know, when they started cooking in the 1970s and 80s, um, the idea of American food was a lot narrower than it is now. You know, thankfully it's, it's gotten more diverse lately. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, it's kind of like seeing the, the, the kind of birth of this, of a certain idea of, American food and kind of young chefs taking it up. Um, so yeah, it was, um, I, it was, a, it was a, it was a great project. Um, I'm excited to have the, to have the book be out in the world and, um, you know, excited in particular to see how, 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 what, what, what cooks think of it. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I'll be sure to be sharing it on, all my platforms. I just think it's important. Uh, like, you know, like I shared earlier, I think it's important to like, to not lose these, the, the legacy of people. Like I'm, I'm sure there's going to be cooks in five years. If we don't keep up, you know, talking about it, that just think it's in a, you know, that the James Beard foundation is just a foundation that gives awards and might not truly know the, the person behind it. Um, so I think it's so important. Like I can't stress enough how important I think you're writing about this is. I think, it, I'm excited to read it, but I also am excited to see people be educated on who he was. And I'm excited to learn. I don't, I really, I mean, I'll be honest, I know he is, but I don't really know as much as I should. So. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I mean, th- you know, first off, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I end all my podcasts the same way. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, I, you know, I call the listeners of the podcast followers of the page of Blind Cook Nation. It's a group of food industry people looking to connect and kind of uh, grow with each other and share stories. And now that you've been on the show, what does it mean for you 
uh, to have lent your voice into this community of cooks and food industry workers who are trying to just learn and evolve the industry. You know, I, 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 I feel really honored to be able to, to be able to speak to, to cooks in particular. I mean, um, you know, cooking was a huge part of my life. Um, and now, and my kind of writing was felt like a natural segue from cooking because it was all based in this sense of curiosity um, about about food and eating. So to be able to to share that with um, with other people, especially younger ones, uh, feels just like a huge huge privilege. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. And you know, thank you so much for coming on. It truly was an honor to chat. Um, if you just want to share where people can find you on social media. And also if you just want to plug the book one more time, uh, cause I know, you know, we didn't, I, I want people to read the book. So that's why I didn't want to ask too much about James Beard. I know we talked a lot about him, but I really hope people do pick it up and read it. Great. Thanks. Yeah. So the, the, the book is called the man who ate too much, uh, the life of James Beard. It's published by, uh, Norton. Um, it's the, it's published on October 6th, 2020. Um, and, uh, if you go to my um, both my Twitter and my Instagram, so my t- so my Twitter is at John underscore Birdsall, uh, and my Instagram is the same thing at John underscore Birdsall. Um, you'll see a link there. You can pre-order uh, from all the from all the usual suspects. Um, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, and like I said, I recommend everyone. You know picking up the book. I think it's important. And yeah, I, I would recommend anyone reading your, your prior work. I think, you know, just the way you write is so, uh, like when you wrote about the burger, I got hungry. Um, when you share <laughs> the emotions of people needing to feel like they hide in a kitchen, I felt tremendous like sadness and also anger that people felt that way. So I really do think, you know, checking out John's writing is a must for anyone who, you know, says they love the food industry. So Awesome. All right. Well, John, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, just thanks for coming. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. There you have it, the interview with John Birdsall. The link to pre-order the book is in the description of the episode, along with the Join the No Kid Hungry link to donate or share. Thank you all so much, and I'll see you on the next episode.